Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The fitting experts at Indochino empower you to become the designer and build your own custom wardrobe. They launched on the belief that the luxury experience of ordering custom clothing should be available to everyone. And now Indochino has expanded their offering to include the female form. In select cities, Indochino has introduced a new tailored experience for women, so everybody can find their perfect fit in a made-to-measure suit, all for a surprisingly affordable price. Design the power suit of your dreams, from the fabric to the cut with a large assortment of customizable options. Your suit is made precisely to your measurements, so you can make your statement by fitting in while standing out. Be one of the first to get a made-to-measure garment at an off-the-rack price from Indochino. Learn more by visiting page.indochino.com slash womenswear to book your showroom appointment today. That's page.indochino.com slash womenswear. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Today I'm going to introduce a special episode, which is recorded as part of Autosport's Race of My Life mini-series podcast. In this edition, we're joined by 1996 Formula One world champion Damon Hill to discuss his choice for Race of My Life, the 1994 Japanese Grand Prix. Damon also discusses his overall F1 career, what it was like racing against such famous rivals as Michael Schumacher and Nigel Mansell, and offers some thoughts on the big talking point ahead of the 2020 Formula One season starting, Sebastian Vettel leaving Ferrari. We hope you enjoy this episode. Damon, welcome to the Race of My Life podcast. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks uh, very much, Alex. And um, well, it's all being conducted uh, under the uh, sort of easing of the lockdown. Um, if I can reveal that, you know, that's where we are in time. So we've all been locked up, plenty of time to think about Formula One and uh, the history of Formula One and a lot of reviewing going on of, uh, of past races because we haven't got any new ones to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, we are we are indeed recording remotely. And I'm delighted to say, not that unfortunately the listeners will be able to see this, but I can see a copy uh, or a cover of Autosport behind you over your shoulder, which is particularly cool. Yeah, the champion edition. That's that's very, very yes, good. obviously very um, much uh, cherished. It was uh, the, the one where you do a special edition when uh, someone has become a champion. 
And so it's got a green title at the top of it. And um, it's in very garish fluorescent colours, which I, I was told, was assured that that would boost sales <laughs> in those days. They said it, it stood out on the shelf. But I don't think we bother with that anymore, do we? I don't know. You can tell me. No, I th- think things are a little bit... A little bit more refined on autosport, but Ben, you're you're the you're the magazine editor. Would you go for such garish colours these days? Uh, probably not these days. I think that was a, a particularly psychedelic time in autosports history. Experimental. We are here to discuss a race two years earlier at the same track at Suzuka, Japan, 1994. So I thought just before we uh, we get into the nuts and bolts of the race itself, which was very dramatic, uh, very interesting, um, appalling conditions in the wet weather at Suzuka, um, I thought I'd just give a quick uh, summary of, of where things stood ahead of the race, which is that um, uh, the 1994 season, Michael Schumacher had been dominant for, for Benetton early on. We had, of course, the, the tragedy of Imola, as, as Damon, you mentioned in your words in, in the Race of My Life feature at the beginning of this episode, losing Roland Ratzel and Ayrton Senna. You, of course, won in Spain for Williams and at Silverstone where Michael Schumacher, there was the uh, the famous incident of uh, overtaking on the parade lap, uh, ignoring uh, or, or not coming in in time for the penalty, being disqualified for ignoring uh, the black flag. And then he was banned for two races, which became later on Italy and Portugal after uh, racing under appeal. Uh, you won those races and the championship fight uh, came close together. But then Schumacher, of course, won on his return at the European Grand Prix at Jerez. And that set up uh, a very important race for you at Suzuka because effectively you had to win the race or at least certainly not finish the race to stay in title contention because if you hadn't scored Schumacher would have wrapped up the championship uh, in Japan so a lot of a lot of pressure on you going into the weekend uh, and obviously there've been there've been quite a few team changes already that season with obviously after the tragedy of of, of, of losing it and Senna you had David Coulthard Nigel Mansell had been brought in so it was fair to say a turbulent time arriving in Japan yeah it was uh it was tense. That's one way of describing it. Um, there was a chance to stop the Benetton Schumacher um, steamroller. Um, the we had been steamrolled in Jerez. Uh, the I think it was the European Grand Prix, and uh, but that was down to a. I mean, I, I looked pretty uh, defeated, and, and they looked pretty triumphant after that race. But uh, it later transpired that there was a problem with the fuel rig, and I'd been carrying around extra load of fuel which basically affected the performance so we could have done a lot better in Jerez but it was a problem that was so I was I had my own issues with the team where I confronted um, Frank and Patrick about this and so you know they were a bit disgruntled that I didn't do so well and I had to kind of um, I had to go and meet them and say um, you do know why I didn't do well don't you it's because you you basically added about 30 kilos of weight to my car and I couldn't couldn't go any faster so um it, it was tense within the team as well as um, I, I don't, they don't, you know, they're a very competitive outfit. They don't like to look silly. And I think they, I got the sense that they'd given up on me. And, and that's because partly that was exacerbated by the fact they kept bringing Nigel Mansell back to do the business. And I'm not, uh, I'm not in any way detracting from Michael's, um, sorry, from um, Nigel Mansell's, um, you know, power. And of course his experience in the team, but it was kind of, undermining for me to be racing against Michael or trying to take the title fight to Michael and constantly having um, a substitute brought back in to uh, to to try and shore up the team so I went to Japan feeling very a mixture of determined to uh, to do as well as I could but also um, feeling under supported in my attempts to do so by the team bringing in Ben here and um, we know it was uh, we know it was a, a very wet weekend in 1994 and that's something you had experience of was it last year with the uh, with the typhoon causing all sorts of uh, 
all sorts of difficulties for everyone in, in at Suzuka. Yeah, yeah, we got trapped in that, and they cancelled they cancelled qualifying day and and moved qualifying to to the Sunday morning and truncated weekend. Occupational hazard at that race, I think, uh, and the conditions particularly terrible uh, in '94 uh, for the race we're discussing. Um, and I think that's what I find particularly impressive about this performance because you know Damon touched on you know the the atmosphere at the team obviously it was a very challenging season for Williams and, and Formula One in general but I always felt subsequently that you know as Damon said he never really had the support of the team Renault wanted Mansell in Frank agreed with them you've got this title fight that you're trying to to wage against Benetton who are really on the up you know Schumacher's emerging as you know a potential dominant force within the championship, you can't really afford to have any infighting or, or people not really being 100% all aligned in their objectives. And yet you've then got to go to this race in terrible, atrocious weather and find a way to beat Schumacher, who we know is already becoming one of the star wet weather drivers of Formula One and find a way to beat him. So, um, yeah, where, where did that come from, Damon? Imagine or put yourself in the Benetton camp. Um, you know, imagine Michael Schumacher agreeing to have uh, one of his rivals drafted in to shore up their efforts in their title fight against me. I mean, Michael would never have stood for it. I never quite got that won this argument with with Williams about when to apply a fair fight within a team between teammates and when to uh, back your your lead driver. I mean, Nigel. I then had basically going to into Suzuka. I had to bite, beat Michael Schumacher and Nigel Mansell. <laughs> It's like, okay, guys, thanks a lot. You know, it was, uh, I mean, I love Nigel and I'm a big fan of Nigel and I, you know, he's awesome. There's no, there's no two ways about it. He's, he's box office and I understand that. But the timing could have, I mean, the timing could have been better, but maybe it inspired me. Some people took the view that it inspired me more to beat Michael. I just didn't need that extra uh, motivation, but that's the way this sport goes. Indeed. And uh, and how did the weekend unfold sort of weather wise? I know it's very British and silly to talk about the weather all the time, but as we've sort of as we've alluded to, it can suddenly just change massively in, in Japan. So how did how did qualifying and practice go? And then everything sort of got worse ahead of the race? I think um, you can correct me because you might you probably got the data in front of you. But I seem to remember I, I did qualify ahead of Nigel. Um, yes, second behind Schumacher. So I qualified ahead of Nigel, but I had Patrick came up to me after qualifying and, and said, Nigel, Nigel's you know, 30 kilometers an hour, hour quicker than you through 130R or something like that. So I'm just going, but I out-qualified him. <laughs> and I don't know whether he was trying to suggest that I would have been on pole position if I'd done what Nigel had done. But I seem to remember, I mean, in my mind, uh, you know, I remember Nigel going to Suzuka in with a chance of winning the title and he lost it in qualifying and hurt his back and he never actually made it to the, to the race, I don't think. So, you know, I was... I always took the pro- the approach as a driver that you know you go as fast as you you can to to survive to get to the race. I mean, I didn't want to, um, you know, put myself in jeopardy. So I qualified well enough to put myself in with the chance of fighting. But that's the kind of pressure you get um, in Williams. And then race day arrives, and and I was watching. I rewatched the the race last last night, and the the BBC coverage. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost near darkness from what you can see from from the cameras back then, and absolutely soaking conditions. The lights go out, 
eventually I'm going to I'm going to sort of skip back in a second when you get to turn one you said all the the, the, the flash bulbs go off of taking people taking photos just it lit everything up eerily but even before you'd got there Michael Schumacher had come right across on the line. There's some discussion on the BBC uh, coverage uh, that I, the one I, when I was re-watching it, apparently he got, some, he got some wheel spin and that made it look more aggressive than it actually maybe was. But what was your perspective of the start? Because obviously, as we go on to see in, in Michael's career, it becomes a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a feature, that, that aggressive chop at the start. You know, you've got to you've got to have um, all of your uh, senses working when you're racing against Michael, and um, this is pre Adelaide, of course, which is the following race. So, but we we knew that, uh, that he was an aggressive driver. But um, you know, I always take the view you have to have an open mind completely. You can't have a strategy going into the first corner. You kind of work out well if I'm ahead, I'll do this, and if he comes across in front of me, I'll just slot in behind. But um, you're right, difficult getting off the line and, um, you know, defensive driving at the start is not unusual. Um, what was astonishing, as you mentioned earlier, that the, the darkness had descended. And what completely surprised me, but was absolutely fantastic as, a, as an experience, which still amazes me today, is that when we went down to the first corner, uh, the whole of that grandstand at the first corner, which is which, when you're in a racing car, it sort of kind of towers over you. And it's like you're driving into a into an arena. Um, it all lit up because in those days they didn't have phone cameras, um, the camera phones, you know, smartphones. They had um, little disposable cameras with flashlights, and so all of the grandstand just lit up um, like a fantastic firework display. And I remember going round thinking, "That's amazing." <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, I'm slithering around trying to not let Michael get away. And then once we got around that bit, uh, it was, um, you know, uh, pedal to the metal and trying not to let Michael get away from me. Or, or there was only one more one light that I was interested in after that. And that was his rear light, um, which I thought if I lose sight of that, then he's he's going to get away. So what I have to do is be able to stay in touch with that. And indeed, it is is the two of you that that pull away in the early stages. I think you see even the second lap, there's already quite a big gap to Jean Alessi and the pack behind. So the two of you effectively in a race of your own right from the beginning. Yeah, there was a huge gap between, in fact, the same thing happened in Adelaide as well. But um, we were definitely the two uh, guys who were um, in in a separate battle, a separate race, I think, to the rest of them. Um, later on in the race, I can remember there was a big screen and I could see the battle between Nigel and John Lacey going on in the, uh, on the big screens as well. So I was uh, impressed by what was going on, but they were a long way behind. Uh, me and Michael had um, pretty much left everyone behind. What was the feeling in the car at that stage of the season, Damon? Because uh, the FW16 wasn't a great car early in the year and I know a lot of work went into it um, and obviously in the wet you you feel the problems of a car much more and those were probably the most extreme conditions of the season so just how difficult was it to to race Michael given that the car perhaps wasn't in the best shape or had you got it into a good condition by that point in the season? Um, well we worked on it we'd improved it a little bit and um, but the, don't forget all the cars had been <clears throat> had been butchered by by the regulations, the emergency regulations that are brought in after Imola to reduce the downfall. So they, they all had cut off rear diffusers. So really they weren't, they were, none of the cars were working how they were designed to work. And um, so, uh, but, but when you get into a wet race, then some of the disadvantages of a car can sometimes be uh, negated. But, but certainly if you've got, you know, you need to have better mechanical um, uh, parts of the car working. So, um, it, it, 
I don't think it was the best car the, that that uh, that year. Um, and the Benetton was a good good car, so we were pretty much evenly matched, I guess, for for that race. Just reading a line from from your autobiography about about this particular stage in the race, you say that um, I witnessed the most incredible driving display I've ever seen in a racing car, and that's your description of what Schumacher's doing because he's still making errors, but he's still going incredibly quickly. So how, how was that watching what he was up to? Well, it, it is the whole race was on another level to any other race I've ever driven. And I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, you're somehow, somehow I was in awe of Michael as well as also deeply um, uh, determined to beat him as well. So, I mean, I'm, you know, there's been so much written about him already and, and how brilliant he was and this, that, and the other. And I thought, well, I've got the best seat in the house here. Everyone else is watching it on TV. I'm actually sitting right behind his gearbox and I can see exactly what he's doing. And he was getting the car all out of shape. He'd go off up the curbs. In any other situation, any other driver you'd see, they would have lost it. But he didn't. He managed to bring it back every time. And I remember just sitting there thinking, did this guy ever make a mistake? Ever? You know, and and I've literally just thought, all I have to do um, eventually it's going to fly off the road. He, he can't keep this up, but he just kept it up lap after lap. Um, absolutely astonishing. And, and if you look at the early onboard footages of, uh, of Michael, his arms are all over the place. I mean, he really is working the, the wheel incredibly hard. There's, there's a lot of correction going on and, and a lot of the teammates that drove that car just couldn't handle it. But somehow he had the reflexes and the, and the, uh, the talent, I guess, to, um, to stay on top of things and, and, you know, there was nothing that, that, that he, that the car could do that he couldn't deal with. How did you feel about your, your own abilities in wet weather? Because I mean, we talked about Michael being a kind of rainmaster, and that, you know, that carried on through his career, but you had several impressive wet weather drives in your own career. And I'm thinking like Brazil, 96, Monaco, 96, Belgium, 98. Did you always feel like, you know, some drivers feel like when the rain comes, it's going to be their day. Lewis often talks about that. Did you feel like that or did you have to find, did you have to dig deeper to perform that well in the rain? I think you go to another level in the wet uh, because you can never relax for a second in the wet, even on the straights, it's, it's, it's risk. Um, um, but, you know, I don't think many people would desire for there to be a wet race. Um, you know, because of visibility really is the big problem is, you know, when it's, uh, the unpredictability is is unsettling. But then once you get up into that survival mode level of concentration, then you are relying entirely on your instincts. And I, I often liken it to, if you remember um, when you're at school and you tilted back in your chair and it's about to go over, you get that kind of sudden rush of alertness and you catch it just before you fall over backwards. Um, that's the state of alertness you're at in the wet the whole time and uh, you know you you can keep it up for well the question is actually how long can you keep it up for um you know to keep it up for like the great wet drives of people like senna um uh, in in estoril when it's absolutely tipping down of course uh, michael as well in barcelona in 95 i mean you know stunning ability to stay on top of totally ridiculously difficult conditions but there I was in, in Suzuka in that race doing exactly that. But hey, that eventually Michael started to eke away from me and I thought that the game was up. 
Indeed, and uh, and then but then then the whole race is is effectively turned on its head because as, as we'll come to see, Murray Walker at the very start of the race says uh, conditions could hardly be worse, but they do get worse with what Murray describes as hail as the rain just intensifies. I mean, what was it like? I mean, he just the, the, looking on the TV, it's like it's just a wall of water effectively that you're driving into. What was that like? Well, when it when it rains in uh, in Japan, it properly rains. I mean, you've got this warm water from the Pacific, and it hits everything's on a hillside. Uh, in Japan, and so you know, the moment it hits Suzuka, it's up on the hill, and it just um, it just dumps everything it's got, um, and um, and there was wind as well. Quite a lot of there's quite a lot of wind around, and uh, um, and so I think that's the point where did Johnny lose it, and then they stopped the race. Yeah, they call they call a they call a safety car or a pace car because of course that that rule is all very new at the start, isn't it? You can sort of see that like it takes it takes lap after lap of Michael leading you guys driving around before you catch the safety car. Whereas of course nowadays that it would just wait on the track somewhere for the pack to catch it up. But yeah, just before the safety car is called, um, Johnny Herbert loses it on the pit straight. A couple of other cars do as well. And then it quite becomes uh, becomes clear after that that it's, the race is going to have to be have to be stopped. Do they, I think there is there is a restart before the red flag. Is that right? They basically brought us to a complete stop. It wasn't a safety. Eventually, they stopped it completely and had a restart, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And there's some there's some great scenes of uh, of I don't know whether you describe it as political manoeuvring or just frustrations coming out, energy and emotion in the wet because you've got Flavio Briatore stalking about in a in a backwards baseball cap that just looks absolutely hilarious. Uh, Nigel Mansell's getting getting in getting in amongst it. They're all going off to see the stewards. At one point, Mick Hackenden is is pictured just running. I don't know where he's going, whether he's going to the loo or going to the stewards or whatever. But you you remain in your car for the whole time during that stoppage. Is that right? Um, probably did. Actually, the uh, same thing happened in Spa. I remember, uh, you know, I, once I get in the car, I like to, you know, once you get out of the car, you've got to go through the whole procedure of getting your mind into concentration mode. So not knowing how long it's going to take, I thought it's best to just sit here. It can get quite uncomfortable. I remember dying for a pee when I was in Spa after about, I didn't know how long it was going to go on for. It was about an hour after the start. And of course you, you, you hydrate yourself before you start the race. So <laughs> I wasn't using up any, uh, any fluid in perspiration. So I was, you know, it can get uncomfortable staying in the car if you're not careful, but, and some drivers do relieve themselves in the car. And I want to say, make it abundantly clear that I never resorted to that a disgusting thing to do to, uh, to, to do that. Impressive but, um, control. So, um, yeah. A good bladder control. That's I've managed to learn that much. So, um, <laughs> So sitting in the car is my way of, uh, of staying focused. And then during the red flag, it's just watching as TV last night, it becomes clear sort of very suddenly that the sort of the rules of the race are going to be completely different. It's going to be run to an aggregate scoring system, I guess how you describe it, adding the two halves of the race or the two portions of the race together, which is obviously something very rarely seen in Formula One. I think I'm right in saying, we just talking about this on an earlier Race in My Life podcast about uh, Tony Brooks's career, which he won the 1959 German Grand Prix at Avis, which was deliberately two two heats because they just, uh, they didn't know whether the cars could take the pounding on that track. Whereas this one, was it, how was it sort of described to you? Because it's just a little bit unclear watching back how that had, uh, how that had been arranged. Was that automatically everyone knew it was in the rules that it was just going to go right We've had to make this red flag call. It's going to be aggregate because, because if you fast forward, sort of nearly fifteen years later, or over fifteen years later, to Canada, to Canada, two thousand and eleven, and Jensen Button winning, that that doesn't happen. So, what what was uh, what was what was what was your understanding going on on the grid? And I think that was made clear that it would be an aggregate two part race. There wasn't any kind of chit chat going on during that period. I think that we we knew that um, 
I can't remember if it was a standing stop or whether we set off behind the safety car. But anyway, Michael had a six second odd lead, didn't he? So that was the, that was the key point about it was that if I was in the lead at any point, I'd still need, um, I need to be plus over, you know, this six second odd gap over Michael. So I wasn't actually racing, um, on, on the same bit of turf as Michael. I was actually racing an invisible Michael, uh, six seconds, uh, um, you know, further down the road from where he was. Yeah. You had to keep the gap within a certain, that certain frame, didn't you? And I think, um, Murray's saying, as you get towards the end of the race, the gaps coming down, and then you managed to have a quite strong final lap. Uh, just when he's thinking, oh, maybe it's going to get a bit tight. I think Michael hits some traffic and you have a bit of a better run at the traffic. And then uh, we hear Murray getting very excited as you come across the line and take it take it to one more race. One of the problems was in this, the pit stop I had, they weren't able to change the tyre. And, and my, um, my um, hero of a, me- a mechanic at the time who went on to become chief mechanic at Williams, um, Carl Gaydon, was on the, on the wheel itself. And he couldn't get the thing off. So he took the instant decision to keep it on. So my actual, one of my tires, my rear, my, my rear left, I think, did the entire race. Um, it wasn't changed. It was utterly bald by the, the last, uh, but you can see it in the, in the shots in the, uh, in the part for me. But um, so there was a bit of drama there. I was totally unaware of that. They didn't even tell me. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't come and go, hey, by the way, we uh, forgot to, we weren't able to replace, you've only got three new tires, basically, is what they said. They should, could have said, but they didn't say. And um, so I'm out there watching this gap coming down, Michael closing this gap. And I'm, I know I've got to stay above a certain um, level. Um, and I was thinking that should be all right, should be all right. And he, this gap's coming down and it's getting a little bit too close for comfort. And I just thought, all right, okay, I'm going to have to do something out of, pull something out of the hat here. And um, I literally did say, look, Ayrton, if you're up there, you know, I could do with a hand. Okay, I am done. I, I'm, I'm spent, basically. I need, and, and then the next thing I know, I am flying uh, around the S's. I am literally like someone has got my foot and they stuck my foot on the accelerator to the bulkhead and it won't lift off. And I'm literally going, oh my God, I got, a, you know, like a stuck throttle or something. And I just drove around the S's. I got as far as Degna 2. And I was coming into the hairpin. I just thought, oh God, I can't keep this up. And I kind of, it was like I sort of, consciously came back into being a little bit more cautious and I and I just had to hope that would be enough and um let me know the rest is this why you described it as otherworldly when we did this interview as many years ago now uh 10 I guess uh you described multiple times actually that that it felt like an otherworldly drive or an otherworldly race and it sort of sounds yeah. like you were going into a place mentally I mean Senna himself talked about going to places occasionally that you just you, you're out of body almost was it like that for you yeah, it was, it was, that's the only way I can describe it. There was a disconnect between what my, it was almost as if I let myself drive the car, my instincts drive the car. And, and, and I stopped consciously applying the brakes, applying the, the, the caution that you, uh, your self-preservation or your, your perception says you need to do. Actually, we don't realize quite how able we are to uh, to do a lot of things that are physical and um, because we're telling ourselves oh we better be careful and if you take away that it is terrifying uh, I, I will say that because obviously you don't know whether to trust this 
other guy that's driving the car or not. He could be a complete maniac, you know. <laughs> but, but at some point, you kind of go, okay, just, okay, I'll let you drive for a bit, you know. And um, it was astonishing, an astonishing experience, but it was driven by the necessity. It was driven by the competition. It was driven by the championship situation. It was driven by your competitive urge to um to want to win uh, okay i am not going to let anything come between me and, and winning this race so you try everything and um and eventually you come to the point where you you okay okay now you're now i need inspiration from somewhere and uh, and i found it within me somewhere and it was just enough to to beat michael on three new tires uh in the wet on the last lap so i feel pretty proud about that one understandably and justifiably so i mean you you mentioned again in the book about how obviously because of the, the difference in fuel load that's why he starts to sort of edge away at the start so did you ever reassess what was going on because of course you had the, the disadvantage at that point well that was the story of our year frankly we we just hadn't got on top of how benetton were cleverly you know ross braun and the team were cleverly using fuel loads to give themselves flexibility and um and so we, and I think Ayrton also, we often were racing against Benetton thinking or assuming that they were on a similar fuel load. And we forgot to, uh, to factor in that they would, you know, they, maybe they were somewhere between one and two rather than being one or two, they were somewhere in between. So, I mean, they could go either way and they, depending on what was happening in the race. And we took us ages to work that out. We, I don't think we ever got on top of that until quite, you know, maybe we never got on top of it. I mean, it was it was it was just we weren't as sharp as they were about about how to use um, refueling. If I just bring in another line, uh, another line from the race of my life feature that went in the magazine to ask you about, because it's quite it's it, I, I felt like reading it. It's quite the sort of standout line for me. Obviously, you talked about the otherworldly experience and how tremendous that was. But this 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 line here, I felt I had justified myself as a driver in that race to the outside world and myself. And in the in the BBC coverage of of Japan '94, they talk a lot about the the criticism that you've been facing, perhaps after the 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 result at Hareth and things like that, and you know everything you talked about you know the 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 team not being behind you the the emotion of the season but i was interesting as to why you said why yourself at the end there or myself as it myself yeah because exactly because of exactly that i mean you know i did not exude the confidence that michael schumacher did you know or some of the great drivers let's be fair you know i really wasn't i wasn't confident in myself i i'd got a late entry into Formula One. I didn't get into Formula One until I was 32. I was a, I was a substitute driver. And I didn't know, you know, uh, I knew I, through, through the junior formula, I, I kind of, I was put to the test. I was thrown in the deep end at the beginning of my career as a kind of alternative to, to racing bikes. And my first race was an absolute disaster. And, and I think if you, anyone was to look at my first effort in the car, you'd say this guy should do something else. Yeah, really should. So I, I was constantly on an uphill um, battle, no pun intended. I was obviously fighting this, this late entry thing. You know, I didn't start car racing until I was 23. I didn't get to Formula One until I was 32. And now I'm fighting for a world championship when I thought I'd be teammates to Etten Senna and kind of, you know, burger style trying to, uh, you know, do what I could or, or hacking and, you know, <clears throat> against this guy. So Next thing I know, I'm actually fighting for world championships. So I wasn't confident. I didn't have the, 
I was still finding out. So I think that race underscored to me that in the heat of battle, in the, some of the toughest conditions, in Formula One, in a title fight, I could do it. So yeah, it was important. Did you ever feel that you won that argument with Williams though? Because at the end of the season, Frank is saying, oh, I you know Damon continues to, to, to surprise me. Uh, and, you know, you talked about, you know, finding this other level in yourself in Japan and you probably carried that on into the title decider in Adelaide because you and Michael again were, you know, well ahead. After a difficult start to the weekend, you were well ahead in the race before, obviously, the collision. Um, but, of course, through 95 and the rest of your time at Williams, you kind of, it doesn't ever feel like the team ever really got behind you as, a, as an accidental number one, if you like. It's a tough environment. I mean, they are very demanding, Frank and Patrick. They're of themselves and of their team. They want the very best. And I think if you show any weakness, then they start to doubt, you know, whether or not they've got the the full package. That's why they signed Ayrton. That's why they signed Nigel. That's why they signed um, Elaine. You know, they wanted they wanted only the best. And I and I and I'm you know I readily admit I did not give them enough evidence of my. Uh, you know my abilities on a consistent basis I every now and then I had dropouts and I think that they they you know they they started to feel uncomfortable and and I didn't exude this confidence as well in myself and it wasn't my my um my way and if I was to you know if I was to advise any driver coming into Formula One now I would say you know you if you show any sign of weakness you show any sign of self-doubt it will be used against you do you know? Do not uh, expect people to come to your to your rescue or your aid if you um, if you if you appear to be slightly different about things. Damien, sort of t- taking that that thought on on a little bit, if you don't mind, about talking about twenty twenty Formula One. We know we've got two drivers who know that they're leaving the teams they they haven't even started the season with yet at the end of the year. So you've got Carlos Sainz Jr. at McLaren and Sebastian Vettel at Ferrari. And thinking about 96 and your championship win, and obviously it became clear that you would be leaving at the end of the year, but you still had to go in with a title fight and and deliver against against Jacques Villeneuve. What's it like racing for a team? And what, what can they expect knowing that they're going to be out at the end of the year? Okay, on sort of amicable terms, particularly with Carlos Sainz, Sebastian Vettel, perhaps slightly differently, we don't know. What's it going to be like for them this upcoming season, do you reckon? Basically, it's a bit like in politics. If you announce you're not going to run for election, lamed up prime minister, lamed up, yeah, yeah. Or, or a dead man walking, or you know, all <laughs> these expressions. You know, it's it is literally world. The world just switches immediately to the future. You know, they'll put an arm around you and they'll go, "Oh, it's jolly nice of you to stay." <laughs> but they can't. They can't. You know, they might if they're very generous, sort of give you a going away present or something like that. Um, I think even more difficult is announcing you're going to stop driving. I mean, I saw Kimi announce that he might be doing it. It might be this last season or whatever. When I made the decision, I wanted to to stop, to carry on thinking, I just need to get through these last five races is very difficult. And Bernie, his, uh, whatever you think of Bernie, you know, he has got insight, extraordinary insight into human nature. And he said, when a driver sees the red light, he needs to stop immediately. And I think there's, that is absolutely true. If you think you haven't got it, don't carry on until the end of the season, stop right there and then. Um, but um, yeah, announcing, I mean, Vettel's situation is is a bit worrying for for him because I mean, he's announced he's not gonna be with Ferrari. Well, it, they announced he's not gonna be with Ferrari, but where's he gonna be? And um, you know, he, he's not gonna drive for Aston Martin or, you know, uh, you know, why would he do that? So when you get to the top, it's very difficult because the only way is 
down and there's no more top anymore if you if you're leaving yeah he's not in control of his own destiny I suppose that's the thing he can't go into the season thinking oh well you know I've got my one in science's case he thinks well I've got my last year in McLaren and then I'm going on to this you know big new world at Ferrari a step up whereas in Vettel's case he's on almost the slide and it's very hard to I guess to have the same kind of mindset and go for that absolute last percent when you know you haven't got a new positive horizon necessarily to look towards uh, yeah I think that's that's where that's where someone like Jackie Stewart's um, you know astuteness uh, shines as shines through as well. He knew exactly when to quit. He didn't go to a hundred races. He went to ninety nine. I went. That's it. Um, you know, Nicky Lauda when he stopped the first time as well. Um, they, they, you know, you, they, there's an understanding they have of how the world works and how um, things work in in in, in Formula One or in or in business or in politics, and. Um, You've got to know when to stop and also probably not announce it um, and, until, you know. But one of the problems is actually being able to get out of contracts. So, you know, to actually sort of, if you've signed up, you, you can't just suddenly go, well, I'm not doing it anymore because you might get yourself into financial problems with uh, breach of contract and stuff. You know, they might say, well, we signed you for, what are we going to do? We want our money back or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. You're sort of pretty emphatic in in the in the feature in Autosport back in 2010 about about the 94 Japanese Grand Prix, understandably being the the race of race of your life. But were there any other races you might have put up there, or perhaps were were just behind this one? Um, any in particular? We, I've got a list of suggestions from our editor Kevin Turner to go through with you if you want. Uh, Adelaide 94. The next one, yep, the very next one. I mean, that was to me that was Suzuka Part Two, until it all went wrong. <laughs> So I, I, the, the astonishing thing was we, we set off from Adelaide and it was just like we literally put the cars in a crate, flown from Japan, landed in Adelaide and they just carried on racing on a different track. Admittedly, it was dry and wasn't wet. But, you know, the pace of that race was intense. That was so intense. And, and the thing for me is that Michael, I did put him under pressure because he pushed himself to go to, break, to make the break, but eventually went off. And, you know, he, he overdrove to get it to, to, uh, to stay, stay ahead of me. Yeah, he made, so, yeah. he made the mistake, I guess, in Adelaide that he didn't make in Suzuka when you were watching him. Yeah, quite possibly so, um, Ben. I think, you know, I think maybe my, my assessment was right that you can only keep up that level for so long and eventually something's going to give. And it certainly did in, in, in Adelaide. But um, there was no consolation um, you know, for that, because he, he may, even when he's only got one arm behind his back, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's still a dangerous uh, competitor. And um, what was the atmosphere like at Williams, Damon? We, you talked about Patrick Head coming up to you after qualifying at Suzuka and, and pointing this out. And I think you say in this, in, in your book, yeah, you just said it in your head, okay, sod you then. And then leads to this fantastic performance at Suzuka. But what was the atmosphere at the team like during the title decider in the, in the run up to, to, to what happened in Australia. I, I want, I want to emphasize this because I have, I've got a lot of affection for, for Frank and for, for Patrick and, and I, and I, you know, I've got a lot to be thankful to them for as well. Um, but it is, you know, there are times when what is said at the time has an effect. And, uh, you know, I think Patrick thought he was motivating me uh, by giving me a rollicking occasionally and it did, it did motivate me, but my, it was a negative motivation. So my, my motivation is, look, okay. I remember once in Spa, he had, uh, he had a moment where he was a bit frustrated and 
came and gave me a talking to. And this was in the like first 10 minutes of the first session on a Friday, I think. And so he came in and he had a go at me. And I remember thinking, what the hell, where did that come from? So, so I took the steering wheel off and just gave it to him. I said, here you drive. And then he went off in the huff. And, uh, <laughs> but then that's, that's all part of the fun of the game. We all love each other and we all actually want the best out of each other. But every now and then we, we snap and, um, and, and bark at each other. And uh, it's, uh, it can be quite amusing. What was the atmosphere like on, during the Adelaide weekend in the team? Yeah, the Adelaide weekend got off to a very bad start because I'd sat next, I'd been to Barry Sheen's um, and Barry was banging on to me. We flew down to, from Brisbane down to Adelaide. He'd been banging on at me about my contract for the following year because I'd started the season as a number two and now I should be, you know, paid what I was worth. <laughs> so he managed to convince me that I was underpaid and underprivileged and all the rest of it. And I got off the plane and... Um, and launched into this tirade uh, to Murray Walker about how Williams didn't appreciate me. And then I, it all went, went a bit pear-shaped. And, uh, and then I went into the garage and I saw Patrick and I, just, I, I was so embarrassed, honestly. It was so, there they are waiting to receive their driver and he's just told them that he's uh, not appreciated by the team. So I made many gaffes um, as, a, as a, a, a fledgling Formula One driver uh, in that position, and uh, you, you live and learn. Well, the, t- the timing might have been poor, but the, he was right, wasn't he, Sheen? Because you know, I think Mansell was on the contract for his selected appearances that eclipsed the amount that you were being paid for the whole season. So you must have had some grounds for feeling a little bit aggrieved, considering that you were heading into that race with a chance of the championship. Maybe so, but negotiating in public like that wasn't so <laughs> wise. What about your your title win at Suzuka in 1996? Where would that rank on a list of your your great races? Obviously, you know, I mean, it was a relatively straightforward drive. I mean, quite frankly, you know, Mike, um, sorry, Michael wasn't in a competitive car. He was there somewhere, but um, but Jack was the only person who had to beat, and his wheel fallen off. So it was, it was pretty straightforward. Um, that's not to say that it was, you know, of course, the tension before that was in was massive. Um, but once it was resolved, once uh, once Jacques was out, you know, I just had to to get the thing home, and uh, it was quite enjoyable. At many, in some ways, except of course, I did say to when they said that Jacques is out, you're world champion. I did come back with, <laughs> I said, do do I have to carry on? <laughs> and they said something like, yeah, we'd like you to win the race as well if you can do that. So uh, easy race as far as they can be. It must have been a big relief though because i think the races leading up to that had been quite tough you'd had that you know monza race where you were leading and those weird tire stacks i think caught you out and then obviously jacques had a great performance in esteril and i think you had a, a reasonable gap in the points i mean the pressure was building into a you know into a situation that would have then also been new for you as well and we saw even drivers like michael have a bit of a choke on the on the title to side even when it's almost done so it must have been a hard weekend nevertheless yeah, the Monza one was was actually, uh, it was almost like the opposite of, of a, a choke. I'd, I was flying. I, I did this great pass on um, a Lacey and they had these tyres on the chicanes and I'd managed to get get it beautifully, you know, uh, the car was so nimble that I could just slither through the, through the tyres when I was pushing. And then once I got a, a bit of a lead, I remember saying to myself, okay, don't, don't push it now, Damon, just, you know, back off a bit. And of course, the moment I backed off, instead of sliding, it gripped. And it turned in about a foot earlier than, uh, than it had been. And I just hit the tires. So actually going slower uh, has often been proven in, in Formula One. Actually backing off 
um, creates a problem, which I think is what happened to Senator Portia in, um, in Monaco, where you, the moment you back off, um, the car behaves differently and you, you can get your lines all wrong. Anyway, yeah, it's one or two bumps in the road, as you, know, as you rightly say. It's never a plain saying. This year's championship is going to be curious because if they have a reduced number of races, it's going to be flat out every race, isn't it? It's going to be, you, you know, you're not going to get a chance to see whether or not there's a trend through the season. There's not going to be any development. So I think it's going to be quite an, an unusual uh, kind of championship, this one. Uh, Damon, what about, can we please get your thoughts on the 1997 Hungarian Grand Prix, that famous race for Arrows where it had all been, it was all set up for a famous victory and then it got snatched away from you at the last minute. How was that from your perspective? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a fantastic weekend where we were blessed by a, a poor tyre decision by Goodyear, partly, um, and some of the Goodyear runners had used the softer tyre compound. And Bridgestone, you know, we, 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 I always thought were a fantastic tyre. They, they always made this very reliable kind of, uh, it had a kind of rigidity to, the, um, to the, the tread, which enabled you to, to push it. Um, and I'm not saying good or you were bad tyres at all, they were good too, but Bridgestone's got, got it right. And we were the only ones who had it at, um, in Hungary that weekend. And we managed to get a balance, didn't need a, very powerful engine at Hungary. It was it was twistier than it than it is now actually, and um, and we had a great qualifying. And Michael couldn't get off the couldn't get off the corners. And after a few laps, his tyres were finished, and so I managed to get past him and made the break. And um, after about twenty laps, I thought, well, it's, this has been a fantastic weekend. You know, we never expected this much with with Arrows, frankly. So leading the race, that was that was good enough for me. But to get within one lap of the end um, and then for something to happen was um, a little bit cruel. But at least we got to the finish. That's the only thing you can say about it. Absolutely. Ben, can I bring you in here? Any any races you might want to ask Damon about or suggest that we could have been up there in a race of my life discussion? Well, and it, the Hungary is the one that gets talked about. If I, you know, people, when they refer to my career, they talk about that one almost more than any other race. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I could imagine. So, I mean, as a fan in in that period as a kid growing up, I mean that it did stand out to me uh, because obviously the car you're in was a it was a backmarker car for most of the season. So for it to suddenly be for you to suddenly be, I mean, I thought if you know if Dame was going to finish in the points or even on the podium, that would be amazing. Uh, and like you said, you know, you it was so unexpected. You were happy once you'd taken the lead, but you know, if that, I think if what had happened hadn't happened and you'd managed to do that extra lap and win that race. I think that would, you know, it would probably far and away outrank just because it was so unexpected, but you had, a, I think you had a few races that were unlikely. And you know, I think spa 98, uh, I know everyone talks about the kind of team orders thing at the end and calling Ralph off, but you know, you qualified really well in the dry. I think you split the McLarens and the Ferraris that weekend. Yeah. Uh, and the car was fantastic that weekend. You know, it was, um, uh, it's always the fundamental car design has always been suited to Spa, hasn't it? That uh, the Jordan seemed to be anyway. It it came good that that weekend for for a lot of reasons, and the Ralph thing um, added a bit of drama. I mean, it was drama right from the, the word go. It was a, it wasn't wasn't quite as long as Canada um, the button win in Canada, but it was quite a long week um, you know, afternoon that one and very cold and wet. Yeah, uh, and. Also, I think Monaco 96, that was a race that stood out to me. I know it didn't end well, but, you know, given the the particular history of that circuit in your family, 
to have that uh, you know that performance again in the rain, very difficult conditions at a circuit like Monaco. I think that that's the that's the real one that got away. Uh, other than maybe Hungary '97, I thought that performance stood out as well in your career. That was that was the one time that I, I, I remember that we got um, as a team with Williams, we got the tire change absolutely spot on <laughs> we actually finally did it we got it right and then the Renault engine dropped its uh, sump plug or something anyway um so tough one not had too much success Williams at uh, Monaco um I think that was a real shame that one I think you know I, I felt like you were you that was one of the well that year obviously you started extremely well and you had a impressive performance in Brazil which is again another mixed conditions race but yeah I felt like Monaco you were kind of you know really in the groove well I think I think you can look at some races and go okay well I did I did my job you know as well as I could and, and it was it was really going well at, uh, in Monaco um, there are other experiences like qualifying laps that you did I think uh, it was 95 the qualifying lap with Monaco was was really out, out of this world for me it was fantastic lap um, another one at uh, the Nürburgring I did um, which was I was reminded of that qualifying lap. I think it was '96 um, by um, Dario Franchitti. <laughs> said uh, he said that lap was a good lap, and I, I remember thinking about it. it. Was it was absolutely one of those laps where you just go everything just you could you could lean on the car and just squeeze out every last drop of the performance. So satisfying to just get those one lap experiences. So lots I've had a, I had a lot of experiences in a very relatively short career compared to what they do nowadays. I mean, they're normally out there for 14 years or more. So, um, so, uh, yeah, I raced my life would say is still Suzuka. Um, some great other experiences like Monaco, as you said, and Hungary, um, and spa, um, 98, which was, um, I don't think I could have, you know, expected. I certainly didn't expect anything like like that kind of career when I when I start, first started in Formula One. I had no idea what to expect. Absolutely. Well, you've uh, you've you've thankfully taken away my having to introduce the awkward bit where I pretend that I'm going to disagree or don't disagree with your choice. But of course, having you on here was good. That was going to be my question: was Do you still pick Suzuka 1994 as the race of my life? But clearly, you do. And it just again, I think underlines that significance. First of all, what a great drive it was, but just just what it means to you. Yeah, I think it was a defining event. I think um, set up the, the the title showdown. Um, in you know, it 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 stopped the the, the steamroller from Michael and um, and Benetton. They had to pack up all their party poppers and their balloons and everything and take them to Adelaide. Um, they still got a chance to use them, <laughs> but uh, but it was drama. You know, it was '94. Was very very high drama, high stakes, uh, very emotional season and i think it all went into that for me all, all the energy went into that performance in suzuka in the wet damon thank you so much for coming on the race of my life podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this morning so yes thank you very much for your time thank you ben as well thanks to autosport i i hope the the listeners enjoy i uh, when every time i uh, revisit these uh, these races i get the emotions back and uh, so excuse me if i sound overexcited but um it does it, you do start to go back to that time and uh uh, it's phenomenal to recount them. So thank you very much. I'm going to start leaning back on my chair and see how long I can, uh, can balance. Don't try this at home, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Autosport Podcast. And thanks again to Damon and Ben for their time. Did you enjoy the episode and hearing Damon's insights on his drive at Suzuka and wider career? 
well let us know on our social media channels using the handle at Autosport and do check out all of our stories on autosport.com and motorsport.com as well as our features and analysis on Autosport Plus. Finally, if you enjoyed the Race of My Life discussion, do check out our mini-series podcast, which is available wherever you go to download your podcasts, and all the features are available in full on autosport.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, you can get boosted deposits by 57% up to $1,000 on the Gambit DC app and up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost at Gambit DC retail locations. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please bet responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.